on us to follow his example and the example of others. But in these verses, he's going to challenge us to pursue Christ with a passion. And I use that word passion, and I will continue to use it and in my own mind as I think through this passage, because this is really what I've seen Paul building up to, is having a passion for Christ. And I'm not talking about just simply being emotionally driven. This isn't something that we muster up. It isn't something superficial, but we're talking about something that takes place within the soul in regards to one's pursuit of our Lord and Savior and of knowing Him and of gaining Him and being found in Him and being in likeness with Him. But before we come to these verses this morning, I want to look back a little bit because Paul sets the foundation for us. And he's going to exhort us in chapter 3, verse 12, and he says this, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Now what's interesting is that if you look at this verse, you can look back at chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, and we have similar truths there, although in verse 13 we have this continuous working of God in our lives, where here he is going to focus on that moment when Christ laid hold of him on the Damascus Road, that moment that we would refer to as his conversion, but that moment that Christ laid hold of him, and from that point on he sought to lay hold of Christ. He sought to passionately pursue Him. In other words, He was apprehended to apprehend. Because God did this to Him, this was His response to that. In other words, Paul, when he reflects on this, he sees that Christ seized hold of His life. And all the way through this chapter, he's going to do this. He uses this preposition. I put it up here in red letters for you. It is the preposition kata, which means down upon. And in this case, it means to seize, to grasp hold of. It's also used in the sense of warfare is to attack somebody. But it's softened in regards to the fact that it comes from Christ. But we find that God's love realized in that moment of the spiritual apprehension or seizing hold of Paul's life on the Damascus Road. In other words, the initiative of this relationship belongs with God, not man. In other words, everywhere through this letter, what Paul does is he keeps us from being able to boast in the flesh. The first part of chapter 3. Salvation is of God and God alone does not mean that we don't put our faith and trust in Christ and that we continue to do so. That's not what I'm saying, because absolutely we do. But the issue that Paul establishes here is that when we look to God, we look to Him as Savior, and that is who He is, and He alone. And in light of this, then, Paul says, I press on in order to gain Christ because Christ has already gained me. Because He laid hold of my life, then I passionately pursue Him. I strive for him. And this is the word that he uses in verse 12, that he presses on is literally that he strains every muscle, every fiber in his being that he strives towards, he stresses towards, he passionately pursues Christ that he might gain him, that might, he might know him fully and completely, that he might be in oneness with Christ in every way in his life. And that is because Christ took hold of his life. In other words, as Matthew Henry said, if you truly have experienced the grace of God, you will seek more grace from God. So in reality, for Paul, this experience on the Damascus Road didn't cage him in. It catapulted him into a pursuit of Christ-likeness in his life. Passion. It's okay to be passionate about Christ. It's okay to passionately pursue Him. 
In chapter 1, verse 6, he says this, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. This is always an encouragement to me. The realization of the fact that God is at work in me. And that he will persist in doing so until he brings it to fulfillment. In other words, what Paul focuses on chapter 1, verse 6, he doesn't mention God at all. He mentions him in reference to what he is doing. In other words, he wants us to understand his character. He is the initiator and he is the finisher of good. But does that then remove us from responsibility in pursuing Christ and striving after Christ and seeking to be like Christ and seeking holiness in our life? Absolutely not. Does this mean that I lay back in my spiritual life and just say, let go, let God, and don't do anything? Absolutely not. But I must understand that God is at work. He started this process in me, and He will finish it. If I could render verse 6 this way of chapter 1, I am certain that the one, speaking of God, who began the good work within you, will carry it on until it is finally finished on the day when Christ returns. He will carry this out until the end. So chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I like A.T. Robertson and his comments on these two verses. He says in verse 12 you have the Arminian, verse 13 you have the Calvinist. And Paul has no problem stating them alongside of each other. We're the ones with the problem. Both are true. Do I always notice when God is at work in my life? No. But here's the thing I must know. He is always at work in my life. And sometimes when it seems like He is not at work is when He is at work the most in my life. I'll give you an example. I was talking to someone this week and we were going through Matthew 11, dealing with the Lord's Prayer and the, the parable that follows after the prayer. And so we were discussing it and they were sharing with me how spiritually during the week they just felt so distant from God. Like, he said, like, when I'm praying, I just, it was like I was going through the motions, I was doing what was religiously required of me, but the relationship just wasn't there. My head wasn't it, my heart wasn't there. And I felt like I was just going through the motions and all the while, while he is going through this during the week, he's trying to understand the significance of this parable that Jesus tells after the Lord's Prayer. And we know that, that overriding the idea is persistence in prayer, but there's more there. And so he is wrestling with this and trying to understand this in the midst of feeling like he is in this moment of, of desert regards to his spiritual life, that God is far from him. And then all of a sudden, he says, I realized the point of the parable. And I said, isn't it amazing that the times that you feel like God isn't at work in your life is when he is most at work in your life? He was working on his heart, preparing him to understand the truth of that parable. Sometimes it seems like God isn't at work, but we need to know and trust that he is at work. But I also need to know that I have a responsibility to work at my salvation with fear and trembling. I have things to do when I get up in the morning. So I had a professor who said when he'd get up in the morning, he'd realize all of his responsibilities. And at the end of the day, he'd look back and thank God for his sovereign hand in everything that took place. Somehow we live in that tension and must live there. But Paul reflected on the gracious working of God overcoming his rebellion and saving him from sin. It made Paul not passive, but powerful. That God is at work in him. 
And I had this thought in thinking on these verses. Your work is his work for his glory when done in dependence on his power. Whenever we try to do it on our own, we find ourselves in Philippians chapter 3. So the exhortation to press on for Christ, we must do this. There must be a passionate pursuit in our life for gaining Christ, for knowing Christ, for being lost in Christ. We must press onward and upward, and we must be striving to finish the race. And change is a part of our life as believers. I know that for some of us, we don't like change, but it is a reality. The question is what kind of change, right? It is progression, not regression. So embrace the change, but embrace it as it progresses forward, as we seek to be more Christ-like in our life. And this is to be the condition of every Christian. In other words, there's never a point in our life where we sit back and look and say, well, I've borne forth fruit and I'm content in this fruit that I'm bearing forth, and there's no need for me to bear forth any more fruit in my life. No, we must always be striving. We must always be pursuing. We must go from strength to strength. Because ultimately, Paul is pushing on towards perfection, conformity to Christ in every way. But he also understands that perfection will not be had in this lifetime. But it doesn't mean that we don't pursue it. So pressing on toward the goal is the only way to run the race of conformity with Christ Jesus. He established for us our priorities, gladly rejoicing the Lord, glorifying in Christ, verses 2 through 11, so seeing and savoring Christ, or I had this thought, see the glory of God and live gloriously for God. The more that we understand Him, the more that we need to be living for Him, and the more that we need to be striving to understand Him even more then. The Apostle John says this, and everyone who has this hope focused on Him purifies himself just as He, Jesus, is pure. If we are made incriminately glorious with the glory of Christ by means of looking upon Christ, then it is the glory of Christ that is manifested in us. In other words, we're merely a reflection of Him in the world. Thus, go back to chapter 2, that we are lights in a crooked and perverse world. So he is going to focus on this passionate pursuit of Christ, not perfectionism, and then he's going to deal with patterns, and we're going to get to that next week, but I want to look at this passion that he has, this new vigor that he has in his life, verses 12 through 14. And one of the things that I realized walking through this is that there needs to be a dissatisfaction in our life. This is what gets us going. This is what gets us to the gym and starting us working out. This is what gets us to change our diet and start eating healthier, right? There is a dissatisfaction with something in our life. Paul says this, not that I have already obtained it. And twice he makes this statement to make it very clear that we need to develop a holy dissatisfaction in our life. There's always something that we need to work on. Therefore, I am exhorted that I need to stand in front of the mirror of the Word of God and I need to recognize the fact that I have not arrived yet. And yet, sometimes we act like we have. I remember dear Dr. Vera Schlamm. She went through the Holocaust and survived. And it was interesting because she was in the church that my father was pastoring in, in First Baptist in, in La Crescenta. And it was interesting because she shared with my dad one day, she said, you know, I felt like spiritually there was nothing left for me to learn. I can't tell you how many times she read through the entire Bible. 
She would sit there at ordination and she would sit there with these guys being grilled by, by other pastors and, and so on in regards to theology and all of this stuff. And she would sit in the back and she could answer all of the questions. And she said, I felt like I had already arrived in this life and that there was nothing left for me to gain from the word of God. And she says, and all of a sudden then I started sitting and listening to your preaching and I realized there's so much more to know of who God is. There are some times where we find ourselves being complacent spiritually in our life. Maybe we're living on the past. Maybe we're looking back on things that we accomplished in the past for God and we sort of find ourselves just sitting still. There needs to be a hearty admission of our spiritual imperfections and this is the starting point for pursuing God. There's more for me to learn. There's more for me to understand. There's more for me to do. There's more for me to do in serving the kingdom of God. But we need to be careful because discontent though with one's spiritual life can bring about a discouragement. Sometimes we do this. We resign ourselves to a spiritual defeat or moral defeatism, right? We, we look at our life and we see all the failures and we think, why even bother trying? I can't seem to do anything right. I know I've been there in my life when I was younger. It seemed like I couldn't do anything. And I know it was in my own head and it wasn't from my parents' mouths, but. I, I felt like oftentimes I couldn't even do the right things by my parents. And all of a sudden that thought starts creeping in your head. Well, why even bother? If I'm good at being bad, then just be bad. But this is exactly where Satan wants us to go. He wants us to deny the fact that God is at work in us. That even though we can't see it, he is always at work. We also need to be careful, on the other hand, of overestimating our spiritual attainments in life. Sometimes we do this. We live in the glory days. We look back at the things that we did in serving God and we think, hey, I've done it, right? And we just keep looking back to those moments, but not moving forward in any way. I remember a missionary came home after serving the Lord for years and years in the mission field. He was 72 at the time and he came home and he divorced his wife and he remarried a younger woman. And his thought was, well, I put in my time serving the Lord. Now it's time for me to have my life. Sometimes we look at these attainments and we become complacent and we think maybe now it's time for, for me to get my reward right here, right now. Our reward is Christ. We get God. That's the beauty of it, isn't it? But sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we're striving for more. But either of these alternatives fall short of what Scripture tells us. There is the possibility of a high plateau of victory in Christ. And this is something that we must acknowledge. And we realize this, that there is joy in the Spirit to be had even now. This is my frustration for those who go to AA or Narconics Anonymous, Narconon, when they go in there because it's always, hi, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic or I'm an addict. And that's what they say every meeting, every time they get together for years and years and years and years. They are never set free. They are never victorious. And I want to tell them, you know what? In Christ there is victory. You don't have to wait and, and keep anticipating that someday you may fall off the wagon. You can have victory over this and be delivered and walk in the joy of the Spirit. But you cannot do it man's way. You can only do it God's way. And only in Christ can you be set free. And there can be satisfaction 
and we can understand that we have served the Lord and done well. There needs to be devotion. Paul talks about this in the one thing in verse 13. Not only this, but there needs to be direction, forgetting what lies behind. We should be future-oriented. We should view time as flowing from the future into the present. I know that seems a little cockeyed, but think about it. We cannot change the past, but we can change the meaning of the past by living for what is the true future in our life. There's so much that Paul lays out for us here. Determination. We need to press on. There's discipline. We need to have this, and we need to find those who live this kind of life, and we need to imitate them, verses 15 and following. But Paul's going to lay out for us this true zeal, this passionate pursuit that he has. And we won't get through all of this, and I leave this for you to dwell on, and we'll come back and look at these final verses. But just notice with me the progression that moves through here, starting with verses 8 and 9. There is this lofty goal he lays out for us that's worthy of eternity, of knowing Christ Jesus, of gaining Christ Jesus, of being found in Him, verse 9. The heavy cost for this we see in verses 8, where he talks about, I account all things to be lost, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish. In other words, in order for us to gain this, I must lose something. You can't hang on to Christ and the world at the same time. You cannot serve God and mammon. There must be a choice. We make this decision every day in our life with our priorities and values. The lofty goal again in verses 10 through 11, and it's worthy of eternity, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. The ultimate goal, verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, the heavy cost being conformed to His death. I must die to my own agenda, and not only that, but it may cost my own life in serving Christ. Am I willing to lay it down? Or do I do this? And sometimes we might find ourselves doing this. Jesus says, he who seeks to save his life will what? You will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake, right, will what? Save it. Some of us want to live the life for Christ for a little bit and then get a little bit of our life back. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. And I have to clarify something for you when we come to verse 11. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is looking forward. Now, some might think that somehow Paul is establishing some uncertainty in regards to the end of his salvation. But that's not what he's doing here. This is an if clause, if post. And it means if by any means I may attain. In other words, if by this or if by that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. In other words, Paul's yearning is for a complete oneness with Christ. And this isn't uncertainty on his part, but what he is revealing here that is that he doesn't have a knowledge concerning the way that is going to be taken there. In other words, he doesn't know how his life is going to turn out. He knows that there's going to be suffering in his life, but he doesn't know the extent of that suffering. Even in this letter in chapter 1, he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. So he doesn't know the course that it's going to be taken, but ultimately he knows that there is hope, that there is certainty because God will finish that work in him. But he gives us the perspective of this perfection and pursuit. And I love this because twice he brings out this point, verse 12, verse 13, as he moves onward and upward. He helps us to understand that there's going to be difficulties in life. We're all going to have struggles. Even the Apostle Paul had struggles. Even he dealt with infirmities. 
Read Romans chapter 7. Now, I know some take Romans 7 to, to, to speak of Paul looking back to before he was a Christian and then after he's a Christian and bouncing back and forth, but that is absolutely not what he's doing in Romans 7. The tense of the verbs that he uses all the way through Romans 7 indicates that he is speaking from the point of him as a believer. This is the struggle that he's having. In my heart, I want to do right, but I have this corpse, the flesh, that I keep dragging around with me, and every time I want to do right, there's evil right there, and I want to be done with this. And when I read that so early in my life, I thank the Lord for that passage, because I realize I'm not the only one. I want to do what's right. I want to serve the Lord, but I still keep getting hung up over this corpse and I want to be rid of it completely. So as he looks at this and he lays out his pursuit before these believers, he wants them to understand, look, I'm not arrived yet. I haven't attained to this. I'm far from it, but I keep pressing on anyway. And I understand that you have difficulties and I know we all have struggles and there are going to be hindrances in our life, but we must keep pressing on. So there's a little statuette of my dad's desk in his, his office at the house. And I realize this is what he does. My dad has faced a lot of difficulties in life and he just keeps getting up every day and putting one foot in front of the other. So my sister bought him this little statuette thing, and, and it's just, just this old guy walking, and it says, keep on trucking. It's just what my dad does. He had a terrible childhood, left in a missionary home, beat every single day of his life while he was there. They would always say to him, we know we didn't catch you doing anything wrong, but we know you did something wrong today, and so we're going to discipline you for it. He has faced so many difficulties in his life over the years and I've been able to walk with him through this and I just keep seeing him just keep pressing onward and upward, onward and upward. You just get up and put one foot in front of the other. You get up one more time than you've fallen down. This is who we are. Paul doesn't hide from reality here. And he wants to guard against any kind of misconception or misunderstanding. And that is what this phrase is. And we find it throughout the New Testament used as he gives this explanation. I want you to understand that there is a disclaimer here and he's making it very passionately. And then he repeats it again in verse 13 in a very emphatic way. Brethren, I myself, I don't see myself as laying hold of it just yet. I'm still pressing on and I must continue to press on. I haven't arrived. The emphatic statement here indicates, and this is what Paul has in mind as he writes this, whatever others may think about themselves, I myself do not regard myself as laying hold of it yet. There may be some of you that think that somehow you've already become perfect or you've, you've reached the end of it all. I, I had a friend and I met him the first year in seminary and he actually believed that he couldn't sin anymore and didn't from the moment that he was saved. So we played basketball one night with the youth group. And there were some things in his attitude that came out in the midst of the basketball game. So I went up to him after the game and I said, you still think you don't sin? See, if this is the Apostle Paul's evaluation of his life, right? 
Sometimes we look at these men and we hold them so far up and they're so far beyond us. And Paul's saying, look, I'm just like you. It's like 1 John. You read 1 John and, and John, as he writes, he says, if we say this and if we do that. And I'm thinking, he's John. What do you mean if we, right? You mean if you do this because John doesn't do this. But John says, yes, I'm just as capable of doing these things as you are. Because I also struggle with sin nature in my life. It gives me encouragement to keep pressing on. Paul's deliberate opinion of himself then the result of this judgment about himself, and this is the word logizomai, it means to reason. He's thought through this, and he's looked through the discussion, he's weighed everything, and this is his conclusion, the evaluation of his life. I haven't arrived yet. Going back to verse 12, twice he makes this statement already. Not, I have not already obtained it or I have not already been made perfect. And that is what is happening here. The first verb that he makes reference to having obtained it, this is active voice. I haven't done this. The second statement already have become perfect. It's actually passive voice. In other words, I have not already been perfected. And this is the act of God. We see both his work and God's work. And he has evaluated both and he says it's not done yet. I'm not done and God's not done. The work's still going on. What it implies though at the same time that there is yet what he states here is yet to be true. In other words, Paul lives between an already and not yet. These things are already in my life and are happening, but I'm yet, not yet have arrived. We find this with redemption. Go to Ephesians. We have redemption, chapter 1, verse 7. We possess redemption. It is a reality, a present reality in our life. And yet at the same time, we are sealed for what? Until the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. There is an already and a not yet. Paul acknowledges that God is at work in his life, but it's not finished yet. There's still so much more to do. He has not consummated in the salvation yet, but it is coming. He passionately longs for the final destination, but he is not going to presume upon the grace of God as he presses towards the goal. He realized his responsibility to produce and pursue great personal experiential knowledge of Christ, intimacy with Christ, and conformity to the holiness of Christ. These things weighed on Paul. He acknowledged the work of God, but he understood his own responsibility in it all. And we understand that practical sanctification, and that is what Paul is talking about here, this doesn't come automatic in our life like faith and glorification does, or justification does. This is something that we need to pursue. It's constant growth. It's constant looking to the Lord and following His example. As Hawthorne puts it, to know the incomprehensible greatness of Christ demands a lifetime of arduous inquiry. Think about the ending pursuit of that. The incomprehensible Christ. There must be a sense of divine dissatisfaction then and essential spiritual progress in our life. We can never be content with who we are. There's always something more. The goal, the prize that, that Paul focuses on is in verse 14. We'll come back to verse 13 again in a second, but verse 14, he's going to talk about the goal and the prize. This is the only place that we find this word in the New Testament, the reference to the goal, the skapon. It's used in the Septuagint in the Hebrew, matara, which points to the archer and what he aims at, the target. 
And so it's used of the target in archery, but here it's in the context of a goal to be reached. And what Paul uses in this, these verses is terminology that comes from running a race. I love watching track and field. And this is the imagery that he uses as he draws on this and he lays it out for us. So the goal is the finish line. The prize is what we receive at the end of that. There is a marker that we strive for, that which controls our life. When you're running in the race, there is the finish line. It is that thing that you are aiming for. It is that thing that you strive and strain every muscle to cross before anybody else. It is that finish line that you pursue and go after. This is what Paul wants us to do. To follow and imitate those who are running in a race. The marker is set before us. It's Christ and it's a heavy, heavenly calling. But there's also a reward that awaits us. Sometimes Paul refers to it as the crown of righteousness. Other times it is the crown of life. But what we need to understand about these statements, the crown of righteousness and the crown of life, 2 Timothy 4.8 or Revelation 2.10, understand he's not talking about some little tinsel thing that's going to go on our head. Hate to mess up your eschatology, but that's not what he's talking about here. Give you a Greek lesson. In both of these, he uses what we call a genitive of apposition. When he talks about crown of righteousness, it is a crown which consists of righteousness. In other words, it is righteousness itself. It is the crown of life. It is life itself. It is not a tinsel thing that is put on our head. But nonetheless, this is what we receive in the end. And so there is the finish line. We are all striving to finish the race. And at the end, there is a reward for us. There is a crown for us. The nature of this pursuit, Dioko, I must press on. It's present tense, strenuous pursuit. In the Greek, he uses the word to work for. It is to strenuously work for. He puts a preposition kata on the front of it, and it is down to the finish. He draws in this imagery in chapter 2, verse 12. Work at your salvation to the finish. In other words, persevere in the faith. Faith that is real is a faith that what, what? Endures, right? This is what we understand. Paul helps us to understand by verse 14 that we don't run an aimless run. We don't live an aimless life. There's something that we are striving for. There is a goal that we are to pursue. There is something that we are to be passionate for. And all the way through here, he keeps focusing our attention down upon, down upon, as he has us strive and pursue this thing. It is that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It is one day we will be with him and conform to him. But I love the perspective, and I had to move quickly to this, because this is important for us to understand, verse 13. He says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. As he talks about forgetting the things that lie behind us, it's anything that is back behind us that can hinder us of pursuing Christ. Anything. In other words, this isn't just merely the bad stuff, the sin in our life. This is also the good things that we do. So often we can find ourselves trying to run this race of life looking backwards. Now, it doesn't mean that we will never look backwards because sometimes Paul does this in his letters. 
He reminds us of where we came from. This is who you were before Christ. This is who you are after Christ. So sometimes it's good to have this backward glance. If you watch those who run in track and field in longer races, as they make their laps around the track, they'll do this. If they're up in front, they'll occasionally just glance over their shoulder to see who's behind them and how close. But they immediately turn back to face forward. Why? Because you cannot run a good race looking backwards over your shoulder all the time. Try it sometime. Go out in the parking lot and try running forwards looking over your shoulder. I guarantee you, you're going to wind up on your face in no time. Right? But this is what we find ourselves doing. We look at past sins, we get hung up on that. We look at past victories, we get hung up on that. And we find ourselves having a trouble running forward. So he isn't saying that we shouldn't look back at times, but what he is saying is don't live there. Only look back for the sake of being able to press forward then. So I was thinking about this, and I, I can't believe this came to my mind going through this passage. Elementary school, seventh grade. They, they closed down all the junior highs, and they made elementary school go to seventh grade, and then you started high school at eighth grade on, on up. So here it is, our final year at elementary school, La Pluma Elementary School in La Mirada, California. And Brian Webb, he was new to the school, and he was pretty fast. And so he would challenge me to, to race, because he wanted to, to see who was the better of the two of us. We raced twice on the blacktop, and both times I beat him. But according to him, they weren't official races, so it didn't matter. It was just between the two of us, right? No one else really saw. So... There was going to be sort of this track and field day with the school, and they were going to have all of these different events. And so Brian signed up for one of the short distance races. And, you know, it was supposed to be a 100-yard dash, but they extended it further so to make it a little more dramatic. But nonetheless, it was going to be one of the quicker races. So Brian enters it, so I enter it. There are two other guys that enter it, Tony Martinez and, and Sean. And... Tony and Sean, they really didn't have anything to do with the race. It was just between Brian and I. Okay? They had their own race going on. We had our race going on. So sure enough, the race begins. Brian is on my right. We take off. The other two, they're doing their thing. Brian and I take off, and I'm out in front, and I'm running, and I'm just constantly glancing to make sure he's just behind me, right? And I'm thinking, I've got this thing. And I keep them behind me pretty much the whole stretch. Getting close to the finish line, I'm checking just to make sure he's not closing in on me. And I can still feel it. We ran the race on a grass field. And I go to take a step and there's a divot in the grass. And I hit that divot with my foot and it was just enough to throw my stride off. I recovered but it was enough timing for Brian to squeak by and cross the finish line first. He never raced me again after that. He didn't have to. It didn't matter if I led the race, the whole race, and at the end lost it. Didn't matter. He was the faster, and the whole school saw it, teachers, students, everybody. And I learned an important lesson that day. And that was this, is that you cannot run the race looking over your shoulder. You just can't do it. You'll always stumble. And there will be hindrances in front of you, but if you're not looking ahead, you won't see them coming. And you will for sure then trip over those things that are in your way. 
Imagine trying to run the steeplechase, right? Have you ever seen that race, the steeplechase? Imagine trying to run that one looking over your shoulder. And this is what Paul wants us to understand. You need to resolve to pursue Christ. Forget those things that lie behind you. Don't get nostalgic. There's no hope there. Can't live in glory days. So, you know, so what if you served on the mission field? What have you done for the Lord lately, right? This is the question we must ask ourselves. Yeah, I've borne forth this fruit in the last few years of my life, but so what more have you done for God? Memories of success can make one smug and self-satisfied. Memories of failure can make one hopeless and paralyzed in our pursuit of God. Both of them are crippling. Both of them keep us from moving forward. Therefore, give humble thanks for your successes, but make humble confessions for your failure, and then turn to the future and go forward in heart after Christ. Don't live in the past, whether it's past sins or past glories. I can't go back and change my past, and there are many things that I regret. I can't go back and undo those, but I can do something about the here and now, and I can do something in light of the future that is to come. Amen? Therefore, I need to keep pressing on forward towards the things that lie ahead. I leave these thoughts for you to ponder in regards to this pursuit that we are to have. We need to keep pressing on for Christ. He laid hold of us. We need to strive to lay hold of him. There's so much to gain in Christ, right? Incomprehensible, immeasurable riches. But we still must pursue. Help those if you know that there are those who are struggling. Come alongside one another and encourage each other, right? Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we're so thankful for the truths that are here and for the Apostle Paul and how your spirit led and communicating these things about his own life, Father, his own failures and the difficulties that he faced recorded for us over and over in the Word of God for us. And we're so thankful for these reminders of the fact of those who have gone before us. Father, I think of the things that... that I struggle with in regards to the race and the pressing on and the moving forward. So many things that seem to stake me to this world and want to tie me down. But I'm so thankful for those who have gone before us, that cloud of witnesses that we can draw from, those that we can look at and, and gain encouragement from and also find admonishment. Examples of those who have gone before us and lived a life struggling and striving, but yet still pursuing and striving after Christ up until the end. Father, we all desire to be faithful and to be found good stewards with what you have entrusted with us, this, this salvation and gospel message, Father, and the ministry that you've given each one of us and the giftedness that you've given each one to serve you in your kingdom. We desire to be faithful in all of this. But we realize our failures and our inabilities and imperfections, but we're so thankful for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. That in you we can move on. That in you we are new creatures. And we are given the mind of Christ. And although we still struggle with the flesh and we realize that there's going to be ultimate victory in the end that there will be a consummation of what you have begun in us and we're so thankful that you're at work in each one of us for all the things that we can't see we praise you for and all the things that we do see may we stop and praise you in the moment that we see it
I thank you and praise you for all that we have in Christ our Savior. And it's his name we pray. Amen.